0: I'm going to take a minute um, and talk about some of the stuff we have coming up. Um, we're on week three of our Saint series, which means um, next week will be our last week. And then we're into Advent. And uh, um, Judy and I have been talking, kind of prepping for Advent and stuff. And um, I decided I was going to try to um, maybe set this up a little better last year. I feel like... Um, uh, last year, I kind of tried to prep for Advent. I'm going to be sending out an email um, as well, but um, Advent is kind of hard to explain to people because when you try to explain, no, we don't really um, dig into Christmas as much. We celebrate Advent. Everybody's like, "So, what is that?" And you're like, "Well, it's it's more of a seasonal thing." And they're like, "Okay, so another word for Christmas then?" And it's 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 hard to explain the nuance. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try a little bit um, this year because I feel like we've had a year together. Since last time, and uh, we've spent a little bit more time in some contemplative stuff together, and so, um, so this year for Advent, we're going to be focusing on what we um, Esther and I uh, have picked up. We call the decrescendo of the Christmas season. So um, that is basically, if you know anything about music, a decrescendo is when the everything kind of winds down in tempo and in volume um, to this kind of quietness and. And if used well, a decrescendo isn't just like a fade out. It's not just like a. It's this attempt to build intensity through quiet. And so, rather than just saying a, a decrescendo is when you just everybody just kind of fades out to nothing, it's this intentional silence that happens right before a big explosion of sound. And so, that's kind of the way we see um, the advent concept of waiting. If, if you think about. The way the Old Testament's written, it's all this activity, and then there's 500 years of silence before Jesus shows up on the scene. And if you, if you string both Testaments together into one story, which they are, what you wind up with is this, you know, motion, 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 activity, 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 noise, 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 nothing. And in, in this like emptiness, in this silence, breaks in literally the Savior of the world. Like as as a child, and and the and the story completely like explodes. Redemption explodes on the scene, and and Advent is a is a celebration of that waiting. And what I love about it mostly nowadays is it it kind of flies in the face of modern day Christmas, of what we've made Christmas, because Advent is uh, exactly the opposite of the hustle, bustle, busy, spending frenzy we call the Christmas season Advent and so usually when you try to explain like an Advent wait, everybody's like so it's more like a you know you just it's you're it's a quiet Christmas instead of a rowdy Christmas and it's way more complex than that it's not just like winding it down for the holidays it's not just making sure we know that Jesus is the reason for the season it's not that either what Advent is is this contemplative discipline to say for the next four weeks for these four weeks I'm going to intentionally strip down whatever I can strip down. I'm going to intentionally decrescendo and, and bring down as much as I can as this sign of, of, of waiting for something better. And, and in that absence that taking things out leaves, we're, we're opening ourselves up to, to the new, to God to show up in a new way, for Jesus to kind of come bursting into our lives in a new way. And so... It's a complex discipline. When Esther and I first started doing it, we started with the simple question, what can we take out of this, of this holiday season? What have we always done that's always been busy and big and stressful that we can pull out? Let's start with one thing that we can just strip out of this season and say, and it, it is probably going to disappoint some people. There's probably going to be some people, but you've always done the whatever. And, and, uh, and so the, the way we do our day crescendo is we intentionally front load our month. So we say all as much of the busyness, whether it's shopping or parties or stuff, we pack into early December, and each week we intentionally try to do less. We intentionally try to strip down more and more and more, and, and it's a great discipline every single year to say, how much of my busyness is not needed? How much of my craziness is unnecessary? Like, can I, can I have two weeks toward the end of Advent season to just be? And not be a human doing, but be a human being and just enjoy the presence of others, enjoy the presence of God and let Christmas kind of have the faith to believe that Christmas is a big deal because God says it's a big deal. It's not a big deal because I create so much stuff that it becomes unforgettable. It's a big deal because it is, because that's what it is. And so I'm going to challenge everybody this year um, to kind of join us on a true Advent day crescendo and... And try it this year. See how it goes. We're going to, our devotional, um, last year, if you remember our devotional, we uh, did a little teaching that we did gave challenges to do and some challenges to do with your kids. This week, they're all going to be day crescendo. So they're all going to, each week of the devotional, it's going to lead you to to do less. And so rather than challenging you to go out and do something, it's going to be challenging you to stop doing something. Try going without making your bed this week. And just just to take one thing out and see, you know, how that does. I bring that one up because my wife has to make her bed every morning and, and we bumped into that in a devotional one time. It was like, don't make your bed this week. And Esther was like angry, like, oh, why did we read this stupid book? But um, but it's going to challenge you to do less each week, to just take out busyness and see if by the by the week before Christmas, you can have yourself in this contemplative mindset that enjoys the presence of God and not the chaos that we've turned Christmas into. And so for me, I am a, uh, used to be, I'll say, a hardcore Grinch. Like I, I went into every Thanksgiving deciding I'm gonna do better this year. I'm gonna be jolly, I'm gonna be happy, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just make Christmas awesome for my kids. It's gonna be, I'm, I'm gonna be completely upbeat this year. And then we get like two days in and Esther would be like, oh, we gotta do this and this and this. I'm like, oh, this is stupid. It's not even what Christmas is supposed to be about. And i get all grumpy and angry and, and, uh, and before we got a week into December, I was already just, every, went to every single party, like, just dumb, I don't even know why we're going to this stupid thing. And, uh, and so, um and then, and Esther's so festive in the holidays that it would bring her down because I was grinchy and grumpy and, and, uh, and so, about five years ago, we started to celebrate Advent. And we started to say, this is not a, a, a birthday party. This is not a big, you know, yay, look what happened. This is a four-week contemplative process. This is, this is four weeks to wind our hearts down and wait and learn to be si- silent. If, you, if you've ever studied some of the contemplative disciplines, um, some of them are silent. Like there's, there's a contemplative discipline of silence where you just intentionally try to go... You know, it's almost like a fast. You choose a certain period of time, try to go just without talking. For you know, the monks used to do it for long periods of time. But it's a super healthy thing to to say. How much and 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 you don't put on headphones. You don't create you know unnecessary noise. You don't get in the car and turn on the radio. You just try to for a period of time be quiet and just see what else you hear when you don't fill it with your own space. There's uh, uh, simplicity. If you've ever studied the the contemplative discipline of simplicity, they they have you walk through your house and say, what can I do without? What can I what would be a bigger blessing to someone else than it is to me? If so, give it away immediately. Just grab it. And if you and if you if you read Foster or uh, Dallas Willard or any of the kind of contemplative guys, they'll they'll tell you if you ever try to do a, a simplicity exercise and you feel yourself go, well, I can't give that away. Then that's the one thing you give away. You say that's how you know. That one has a hold on you. Just grab it and give it away. Don't even look back. Don't think about it because you'll talk yourself out of it. And just that little thing, whatever it was that went, oh, I can never give that away. That's a hold it shouldn't have. Just give it away. And I've tried it. I can't do it. <laughs> Usually when I go, I can't give that away, I mean it. I can't give that away. Um, but it's a great exercise just to find out how much things have a hold on you. Well, Advent is kind of like that. It is, a, it is a contemplative discipline to say, over the next four weeks, I'm going to quiet my heart in a season when everything is telling me to do the opposite in a season when everything is telling me to ramp it up let's crank this thing up let's be, let's let's create some intensity let's create some noise um advent goes the other direction it is a wind down it's saying how quiet can i get my heart over the next 4 weeks to be um ready to receive jesus is is the thing when we, the first year we did it 5 years ago we sat our kids down and we said we're not going to do gifts this year. We're going to do we're going to hang out together. We're going to do things together um and we're not going to do presents. And we were expecting like a complete explosion and most of my kids say that was their favorite Christmas. We did things together. We had a good time. We didn't have a big, you know, I think Esther made some candies and stuck them in stockings for Christmas morning, but no gifts and we had an amazing Christmas. Um and from then on I've been sold on advent. That's why I I I dive in and and I've tried to explain in the past um, the difference between Advent and Christmas. And most people just kind of give you the glazed look and like, so it's just another name for Christmas. Like, eh, not really. So I'm going to be challenging you over the next. Well, once we finish our Saint series over the season of Advent to wind down, we're going to we're going to try and do it a little bit with our services. We're going to get quieter and quieter. Um, in our services as the, the Advent season goes on in our devotionals, I'm going to be challenging you to do less and less and, uh, and see how it does. And if you, and if you're, if you can't, if, if you fail, no shame. It's a great discipline to try. And, and if nothing else, it'll show you, um, I'm not very good at, at calming down. I'm not very good at quieting my heart. I'm not very good at, at settling things, um, to be open to hear from Jesus. So right now, um, over the next two weeks, as we finish this week and as we, um, do our last saint next week, um, I'm, I'm asking you to start preparing your heart. Like start, start imagining what it would look like for you to, um, and I tell you this now because there are some things you have to do and so maybe now start to plan on how do I front load my month? How do I put the busy stuff at the beginning? Um, because there are some things we have to do. How do I pack as much activity in that first week, week and a half to make sure that you know Christmas happens and that the kids aren't fully disappointed, whatever, um, so that as we get closer to Christmas, we can we can try to quiet ourselves all the way down. Um, so I'm telling you now, so you have time to do some planning a couple weeks ahead, so there, the things that do need to be front loaded, you can front load um, uh, because I'm, this is going to be kind of the the main push of our Advent season this year is to decrescendo, to quiet down, to slow down, to bring everything down to prepare ourselves for Jesus. Amen? Okay, tonight um, we are going into our... Uh, oh man, that was from last week. Oh well. We are going into... Uh, I'm not going to read our scripture right up front because um, I don't want to tell you who we're talking about yet. Um uh, and I have to preach off my phone because I'm, you know me, my tech seems to blow up on Sundays every week. And uh, so this morning, the device I preach off of, a little bigger than a phone, um, wanted to do an update. And it was like 10 o'clock in the morning. So what harm could it do? And last I looked, it was still updating. So I don't know what's happening, but it's not going to be ready. So thank goodness uh, I can open it on a different device and preach this way. So tonight's saint is a woman. Um, she was married to a wealthy man, uh, so kind of a, a wealthy wife, uh, if you will, and her husband had um, businesses and employees, and she actually um, was kind of helped run that. Uh, her, as we get into her story, we find out that uh, she was actually better with her husband's employees than he was. She had more of a relationship with them, and they would come to her and, and engage um, her far more easily than him, which... Turned out to be a good thing because it uh, it actually saved, if not, or changed, if not completely saved her life. Because um, one of her employees one day came up to her um, and, uh, and had an emergency. And this sets this saint in the history books, this one story, this one emergency that kind of showed up um, and kind of uh, put her, I guess, in the eternal, like... Uh, Sainthood, if you want to call it that, but she lived in a part of the war uh, world that was torn by war. It was uh, um, it was an area that was uh, very war driven, and her situation was even worse because um, her her country was in the midst of a civil war. A lot of political unrest, um, governmental unease, and so um, when this happened, and and she was actually cited um, at least emotionally. With the rebellion, um, with the, the the side that was challenging, that was uh, seceding, if you want to call it that, and um, and her husband was actually faithful to the incumbent government. government. So there was some tension there as well, and um, and in the midst of all this mess, um, this employee that comes to our today's saint uh, comes to her to say that one, that the the rebel general. Had approached her husband, um, asking for aid, asking for help, and um, rather than either begging off or um, reaching out to the to the government for for assistance, he insults the um, rebel general, and basically, you know, most rebels, as we Americans know, um, don't consider themselves rebels; they consider themselves patriots. And so, <laughs> I mean, if they win, they become patriots. If they don't, then they're always rebels. But um, but most rebels don't like their rebellion to be pointed out to them. And that's what this guy does. He says, you all you've, you've done nothing but, you know, but rebel the authorities and yada, yada, yada. Uh, I'm not going to help you. Basically completely challenges and offends the rebel general. And uh, and so um, the rebel general is rounding up the troops and heading in. And this servant comes to her and is like, a mess has happened and I think you're going to have to fix it. And so she jumps in and in the course of uh, her story, um, sets herself in the history books. Um, and so she goes into action like really only a woman can. Um, I love how a lot of the big stories, um, you always find women like doing the, the heavy lifting Um, I've always thought about the, the women that found Jesus, um, uh, resurrected. You know, they were just, they were doing that thing women do at funerals, which is taking care of all the details and busy work. So they, they show up like ready to embalm the body and just, and do the thing in a group comforting each other, because that's another thing women do well. Um, and they go and they're the ones who get to discover that Jesus is risen. And, and there's a bunch of stories like that in the Bible, and this is another one. Um, because this, this story comes from 1 Samuel 25, and this saint's name is Abigail. And uh, and she is um, this woman in the Old Testament that we have one chapter about, um, and then a few little details elsewhere. We don't really have much about Abigail, um, other than um, her story falls in this time when David and Saul are basically at war. Saul is the the recognized king. David is the rebel general. He uh, God has, when he was a child, anointed him to be king. But other than that, um, he there's no real evidence that he is anything other than a rebel. And so at this phase of the story, when he comes, he's been camping on the backside of a man named Nabal's uh, property. And him and his men have been kind of sleeping out with the sheep. And since they were on the backside of his property, back then you didn't have great fences. You didn't have a lot of stuff. Um, The shepherds were out there with the sheep. And whenever some Philistine raiders would come in, David would defend Nabal's stuff and basically chase off the Philistines. And so Nabal is prospering because of uh, David's chosen location. Because David is camping on Nabal's property, Nabal's prospering. So David... When it's time for like the festival, the shearing of the sheep and the, the festival time, David just comes up to go, hey, I know you're going to be throwing a party. We've been kind of back here watching your stuff. I didn't know if you knew that, but if you got anything to spare, that would be awesome. Like we're getting kind of hungry back here and we could use some provisions. And Nabal, instead of saying no, or calling Saul and saying, hey, I happen to know exactly where David is, he sends an insult back to David. And he's like, uh, in fact, I think I put, um, oh yeah, I forgot. Yeah, forget that. So this is Abigail. This is uh a Baroque painter. I wrote his name down. Jean Antonio Escalante. Uh, it, this is called Prudent Abigail. You'll understand that. If you don't know the story well, you'll get that picture here in a little bit. Um, uh, we'll get that in a second. Hold on. So uh this servant comes to Abigail and says, um, your master insulted David. Basically sent back um, something along the lines of, all you've done is run away from your master. Am I supposed to give food to every runaway? Like, he doesn't recognize David's uh, future at all. He just sees David as a, another rebel who has left his, his, uh, his leader and is out running around on his own. And so he insults David and David is mad. David grabs most of his troops, leaves back just enough to guard the tents, and says, so this man dies today and he says something like, like God curse me if every man in that household isn't dead by night. Like he's, he's angry. Like he really leans into this thing. And so the servant runs to Abigail and, and tells her the story. And you kind of see the way the servant comes to her that she obviously has the better relationship that that uh, because David even told it, told his messenger when he when he went to talk to Nabal says, hey, we've taken care of your stuff. We've made sure that nothing's got stolen. Ask your servants because they know how good we've been to you. Like and the servants don't go to Nabal like they know better. They go to Abigail and they're like, hey, this is about to blow up and get ugly. Um, is there anything you can do? And so she doesn't even bat an eye. She heads to the kitchen. She's like start baking bread start making stuff get things together you know load up wagons and donkeys and she heads off david and so she goes and uh meets david in the road and david at this point he was just saying this is when like right when she rides up is when he's saying his god curse me if i haven't killed every man you know in that house by night and she rides right up into that um, and i've always looked at uh, abigail as like this icon of faithfulness you know cuz she uh because in this story, she saves her husband. Um, because what she does is she meets David on the road and she has all this food. And she, and she says this thing like, what she does is she calls him out. And she's like, look, one of these days you're going to be king. And do you really want in your conscience that you lost your temper and killed a loudmouth? mouth? Like, really, that's all this is. Like, this is, you've got the power to, you know, he's stupid and, and mouthed off, but you've got the power to kill him and squish him. And do you really, when you're the king of Israel, do you really want that on your conscience? That you lost your temper and just killed a household full of people because they, offend, because they called you names, like ultimately. Because they picked on you and said something mean, you slaughtered the whole house. Is that really what you think the king of Israel should be like? And David immediately calms down. He's like, um... It's a good thing you showed up because then she the other thing she does it's awesome she's like hey this is this is my fault I should have inter- intercepted the servants instead of my husband if I if if they had come to me this never would have happened uh so I'm so sorry I missed him but here's all the food you asked for you know everything's good So David backs down and uh and you know she so she saves David's conscience maybe his soul like he was about to just go on a murderous spree because somebody called him a name and so she saves david from that she saves nabal from death um and so i've always just kind of had her pegged in my head as this this woman who and she even like while she's talking to david she's like you know what my husband's a loud mouth he's not a nice guy uh i apologize for him like she she even recognizes that Nabal's not a good guy she doesn't really defend him but she's faithful to him and really saves his life and so in the midst of this terrible situation, she steps in, saves her husband from his own stupidity, saves David from his own stupidity, and, uh, and goes home. And so she literally saves the day. And when she gets home, her husband's throwing a party, he's drunk, so she doesn't bother him. And then the next morning when he gets up, she tells him what happened. Basically says, hey, I, I gave supplies to David, he was going to come and kill you if I hadn't headed him off. And the Bible says that he was so shocked by the story that he had a stroke. And passed out, and so he's unconscious for I think ten days before he dies. And so, um, and so everybody typically says that uh, Abigail, you know, that God, um, I guess, because she was faithful to her husband, faithful to David, like God saved her from this bad marriage by killing Nabal. Um, and I and, and as I was studying that this week, the only problem with that is I learned that in Jewish um, uh, I guess uh, inheritance law the wife never gets anything I don't know if you guys knew that the wife inherits absolutely nothing if uh, when the husband dies all of his stuff goes to the sons if there's no sons it goes to the daughters and then immediately if possible passes to the daughter's sons if there's no daughters or daughter's sons it goes to then it starts going to cousins, uncles up to it goes like up to your dad and then over to his his brothers and stuff and then it goes up to grandparents if they're still alive and over to their... Like whatever you got to do to get to a male heir, it passes and nothing is ever left to the wife. The wife gets nothing. And so she kind of becomes part of the inheritance, I guess you would say. She kind of goes with the property, but she never gets to uh, like dispense any of it herself. She never gets to decide what will be done with it. And so Abigail is is in this... this uh, Tough situation where when Nabal dies, her complete uh, future is in question this isn 't necessarily like a, a shiny, happy moment that yes, God has finally struck my evil husband down um, because now her her future is is up for grabs. who knows what 's going to happen to her and so um, and so for some reason, and this was kind of weird because I had kind of prepared this message to talk about faithfulness, to talk about doing the right thing. Even when it's hard, even when you don't want to, like, and, and, uh, and how Abigail, you know, in this terrible situation, steps up to show integrity, um, and, and defend her husband, even though he was, she probably could have just ran and let him get killed. You know, <laughs> who, who, like, I'm sure she could have just hit out and said, well, this serves him right. Like, this guy's always been a loud mouth. But she doesn't. She saves, um, a lot of people. And, uh, and this time, for the first time, I saw, uh, something new and this actually happened um, last night at two o'clock in the morning. Um, I was asleep and just out of nowhere popped awake and and asked myself this question because Abigail tells David, um, when you, actually let's read it and then we'll talk. She says, she fell at his feet and said, I accept all the blame for this matter, my Lord. Please listen to what I have to say. I know Nabal's wicked and ill-tempered man. Please don't pay any attention to him. He is a fool. Just as his name suggests. Nabal is a... It doesn't mean fool, but it was picked up. Uh, the root word can mean fool. And so Nabal, it was like a... Um, a... Uh, euphemism or like a, a word that they used for fool. Like they would they would call you a Nabal. And, uh, and it, it came to mean like a, a fool. Anyway, um, but I never... But I never saw the young men you sent. Now my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, since the Lord has kept you from murdering and taking vengeance into your own hands, let all your enemies and those who try to harm you be as cursed as Nabal, as Nabal is. And here is a present that I, your servant, have brought to you and your young men. Please forgive me if I have offended you in any way. The Lord will surely reward you with a lasting dynasty for you are fighting the Lord's battles, and you have not done wrong throughout your entire life, even when you were chased by those who seek to kill you, your life is safe in the care of the Lord your God. Secure in His treasure pouch. but, this, uh, but the lives of your enemies will disappear like stones shot from a sling. Whoops. Uh, yeah, hold on. Um, Where to go? Oh, When the Lord has done great things for you, please remember me, your servant. Am I going the right way? I don't think I am. Oh my goodness gracious. Oh, what is happening? Uh, when the Lord has done all, always promised you, uh, you'll be the leader of Israel. Don't let this be a blemish on your record. Then your conscience won't have to bear the staggering burden of needless bloodshed and vengeance. So at two o'clock in the morning I wake up. Two thirty in the morning I wake up and out of just a dead sleep I go, how did she know he was going to be king? Like and I and it, it was a question I'd never considered before. David, when he was a young kid, um, was called out uh, by Samuel, the prophet of the day. There's a king in Israel. The king has offended God, and God tells Samuel there's in the house of Jesse he's going to be the next king. And so he goes and Jesse marches all of his sons and they're all big strapping guys. And everyone, Samuel's like, oh, surely this is the king. This, guy's, you know, this guy is built. He's, he's got a royal demeanor. And God would say, no, that's not the one. And they all march by until Samuel's like, are these all your sons? And Jesse goes, yeah, this is all of them. I mean, except the one in the field like David. But, you know, he's a shepherd. He's just a little kid. And Samuel goes, well bring him, we're not gonna move on till he gets here. And so, they send for David, David comes in and immediately God says, this is, this is the next king. And so Samuel anoints him, and, uh, and they feast, and then they leave. Samuel leaves, and nothing changes in David's life. Like he goes right back out into the field. Like, and most of us, if they came in and were like, you know, hey, you're the next king, we'd be like, sweet, I'm gonna need some new clothes. Like, you know, we would start getting set up. You know, like we're, I'm ready for this role. David goes back out to shepherding, and and then like the next story, um, the armies of Israel are being thwarted by Goliath, and David's dad calls him in from the field. So obviously he's still shepherding, and basically makes him an errand boy. Like here, I pack some lunches, take these to your brothers in the in the battle line. And David gets there and of course that turns out to be an opportunity. If he had gotten I've always thought this, if he'd gotten arrogant and been like, Dad, I'm gonna be the next king. I'm not running sandwiches to my brothers anymore. Like this I'm you know, I'm I'm kind of a big deal now. Like he would have never bumped into Goliath and would have never made a name for himself. And there's a time when he's he's running for his life, needs a sword, and he and there's no sword around, he goes to the priest, the priest's like, I just happen to have Goliath's sword right here in the thing. He's like, Dude, that's exactly what I need and he, and Goliath's sword saved his life. And so I'm sitting here thinking, what if David gets arrogant and won't take the sandwiches to his brothers? Later in his life, there will be no sword for him to draw to, to save his own life. So anyway, all that to say, David has this promise, but nothing in his life has changed. As he grows older, Saul starts to realize you know, how charismatic this kid is and, and how many people like him. And so Saul's trying to kill him. David has to run for his life. When he meets Abigail, he's camping on her husband's land begging food. Like when she meets him, he had just sent an envoy, like, hey, we're kind of hungry out here if you've got any extra stuff. They're living in an army camp, basically running for their lives, living in tents, begging for food. And Abigail sees him and goes, one of these days, you're going to be the king and you don't want this on your conscience. And for the first, and so I wake up in the middle of the night last night going, How did she know he was going to be king? Like what was going on in Abigail's life that she... And so I switched my whole message at 2.30 in the morning and and decided what I love most about Abigail is she lived prophetically. Abigail, if, if she's our patron saint this month, she's the patron saint of living with vision, of living knowing that there's something better even when you can't see it uh, if you follow abigail's story and this kind of stands in contrast to nabal um, which you may have already seen it nabal when they come to him here's what he says who is this fellow david nabal sneered to the young men who do, who does this son of jesse think he is there are a lot of servants these days who run away from their masters should i take my bread and water and my meat that i've slaughtered for my shepherds or shearers and give it to a band of outlaws who come from who knows where? Like, that's what Nabal thinks when he sees David. And I have a feeling a lot of Israel at this point probably thinks that. Like, who is this guy? He, he's got this funny little promise from Samuel when he's a little kid that I doubt was, was common knowledge, was public knowledge at the time. And, and really, that's it. And somehow, word has gotten out, Abigail can see more. And she knows, and she, she ends her thing with this kind of prophetic statement, but when the Lord has done great things for you, please remember me, your servant. She says this to, a, to basically a, a rebel beggar that's, living, that's camping out on the back of her, her husband's land. Like when God fulfills all his promises in you, remember me. And if you track her story, she kind of shows up one other time where David's men get um, beat by the Philistines. And their camp gets taken captive. And her and David's other wife are both taken P.O.W. into Philistia. And David and his men have to go rescue all their stuff. And so this is a rich woman. See, we, I generally thought of the story as Abigail has, you know, a bad husband. She has a bad situation. She's faithful. And because of that, she winds up a queen. Like she winds up in the palace. And, I, and, and that's the way I've always thought of the story. Like, Bad situation, but she stays faithful in her bad situation. She doesn't rebel. She doesn't do anything. She stays faithful in her bad situation. And because of that, she's rewarded. And what I missed was that, yes, she's in a bad situation. She's faithful. So she becomes like an army wife living in tents when she was rich and had servants and had enough food that she could throw together a meal for an army that's on the spot if she needed to. So she's not exactly, you know, scraping things together over here. She goes from that to an army wife living in tents, traveling around, you know, packing up the tent, putting up, you know, setting up the tent, packing it up again, setting it up again. And then she gets, uh, gets captured by the Philistines. So now she's a POW. I don't know how bad it gets, but I know from what I've read, you don't want to be a woman who's captured by the enemy, you know, soldiers. So she's captured, taken captive into Philistia. She has to be freed by her husband. It's a long time before she's in a palace. And somehow, in the midst of all of this, when they actually came to her, when David heard that Nabal died, David said, you know, praise God for for bringing vengeance um, for me so I didn't have to. So David saw it as God basically saying, since you didn't take vengeance yourself, I'll take vengeance on Nabal. Um, and he sins for her. And when, when he sins for her, she goes, I'd rather be David's servant um, than than Nabal's wife. And so she comes with the soldiers. And so basically through staying faithful, saving David's conscience, becoming an army wife, living in in Bivouac's, to getting captured, becoming a POW. You know, all of this long before she becomes a queen in a palace. And all I could think was, was, what kind of vision did this woman have that she was willing to endure all of this knowing God has made a promise that he's going to keep. God has made a promise that he's going to keep. So how do we respond to this? I think uh, Abigail really stands for all believers. Because in reality, all of us are asked to do that very thing. We're all asked to believe that there's a palace, no matter what we see in front of us. No matter what we're enduring, we're, we're, we're asked to believe that there's something better. And we're getting ready to go into Advent season where that is the purpose of Advent season is to wait for something better, to believe that there's something better. Every single one of us live, um, with unanswered promises. Every single one of us know what God has told us. We know what He's called us to. We know what He's promised to do and we don't see it yet. Abigail lived prophetically. Like she lived trusting a vision that she couldn't see. Which to me is the definition of the Christian life. It is to, to live, not just believing like yeah, like in my mind, but believing where I'm willing to give my life to it. Willing to change my behavior, to alter my direction, to, to move who I am. Because I know that God's going to do what He said He would do. David was not in a palace when Abigail met him. There was no evidence he would ever be in a palace. The only thing she had to go on was a word from God. we are Actually, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to kind of shamelessly plug something that's coming up. Um, in January, we're going to do a series... Um, on stewardship, we're going to study some of the times that God um, provided for uh, particular, uh, really building projects in the Scripture. And at the end of that, I am going to um, I'm going to ask us to give, which I'm terrible at this. I don't like asking for money. I don't even know how. But um, but we're going to study it and we're going to look at it and. Uh, and what I'm mostly going to do is I'm going to I'm going to ask you to commit to praying through January. Just about, God, what's my part here? What am I supposed to do? What part am I supposed to take in this? Um, what uh what, you know, do I have that, that could contribute? And if uh if your knee jerk reaction is, I don't have anything, then that's that's fine. I'm still gonna ask you to pray about it. I'm still going to ask you to pray through it. I'm still going to ask you to go through the process. And if at the end of it, God's like, you don't need to do anything, then don't do anything. That's exactly what you should do. You should do exactly what God tells you to do. But the the process of praying through that and seeking God and saying, God, am I supposed to play a part in this? What, what, what am I supposed to do here? How am I supposed to join in um, to this thing you're doing? Uh, that is a healthy thing to do. Um, and, and every one of these that Esther and I have been part of building campaigns and Fundraising campaigns where, uh, God asked us to give, um, more than we were comfortable with. And, and we did it. It was a healthy thing. And we've had some that we went through. We prayed through the process. We, we asked all the questions. We did everything we were supposed to do. And at the end, God didn't really ask us to do much. And, and both times, the process was super, super healthy. It was super healthy to say, you know, what do we have, a, what do we have that's accessed? Do we have anything we could give? Do we have anything we could sell? Do we have anything that, um, that, Uh, that would contribute to anything that would, that would do some good. And that, that process was great for our hearts to do that and say what, what, uh, so I say that to say, um, that a lot of times doing the work of God is, is about being Abigail. It's about seeing a future that doesn't make any sense right this minute. It's about asking, um, and I guarantee if we all sat around and pooled all our money, it wouldn't make much like we're just not that kind of church uh, and so for us to do almost anything is for us to say i believe god has something better than what the evidence shows right now it's to be an abigail and and so uh I haven't decided what we're going to call this series. Maybe we'll call it, you know, something about Abigail. I don't know. I'm tempted to call it a begathon because I've always made fun of like Kaylove when they have their, their praise a thon, you know, to raise money. And I'm like, it's a begathon. Just admit it. So there's part of me that's like tempted to just, to just make it naked and just like, Hey, we're going to have a begathon for the next four weeks. Like, uh, because that's kind of the way I tend to do things. Don't over, uh, don't over, uh, like market it or whatever, just just say what it is. At least be up front. We're here to beg for your money, but um, so I don't know what we're going to call it yet. But ultimately, it's about living like Abigail. Ultimately, it's about saying, God, I I know what I see, I know what is here, I know what's in front of me, but I also know that that you you see more, that you know more, that you've called us to more, that you've promised more. It's about living in that more. Is, is the way Abigail lived. Abigail um, she gambled everything. She gambled everything on a on a a rebel living in a tent, believing that what God had said was true. And she and she uh the end of the story, she wound up in the palace. And so bottom line is if you give, God's gonna reward you so- no, I'm not gonna go that direction. But uh <laughs> But as we what's that? <laughs> I was right there. Um so as we go to the table tonight, uh I guess my request to you, as you as you kind of pray through Abigail's story, is is ask yourself what what promises has God made? Whether they're promises to believers in general, whether it's promises to you on things He's going to do in your life, whether it's uh just words he's planted in your heart. Uh, are you willing, like Abigail, to to go on to go all in on that word? Are you willing to say, um, one of these days you're going to be in the palace, David? When you are, remember me. Um, because I think that's that's the crux of the Christian life. I think that is the beauty of the Christian life is not living in what we see, but in living what God has said.